This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Kingmakers, The Invention of the Modern Middle East, our guest today, Carl E. Meyer, explores how that territorial construct came to be as told through the lives of the Britons and Americans who shaped it. Meyer has written extensively on foreign affairs as a staff member of the New York Times and the Washington Post. His co-author, Shireen Blair Brysak, is formerly a prize-winning documentary producer at CBS News. Tournament of Shadows is their previous book together. Carl Meyer, welcome to Weekly Signals. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. And nice to have you with us. How are you today? Well, we've had a glorious uh, August cool on the East Coast, and I'm bracing for, how can I put it, the gale force political winds that are coming ahead. (laughs) Do you have any political plans, or are you just going to... uh... No, we're watching with fascination (laughs) what's going on at the uh, uh, conventions, in which the themes in our book seem to come up as a leitmotif. You know, should we have a uh, a timetable for withdrawal from Iraq, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and culminating today with the, the 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 really interesting news that the Russians have recognized the independence of both uh, Ossetia, uh, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia provinces of Georgia. Now, now, how, how does this reconcile with your book? What, what do you feel about that? Well, first of all, uh, about uh, the, uh, the the timetable question, uh, our book opens with a description of how the British in 1882 uh, literally invaded and took over Egypt, but they said it was temporary and that they would pull out as soon as they had a, uh, a stable and modernizing government in place. And they repeated that promise 66 times until the 1950s when they finally, 68 years later, (laughs) did pull out of Egypt. So uh, there's always a reason for staying on, Uh, and uh, that I think a strong argument for a firm timetable uh, is that it does set a a date definite on which you're going to pull out. When you heard the the, uh, current administration, the Bush administration, um, say they wouldn't. They until very recently were, weren't prepared to even negotiate a time frame. But when uh, even as late as two weeks ago, they were talking about the time horizon. Yeah. Did you did you have a reaction to hearing no, you know this nebulous idea of time horizon? What was? Oh your... no, no, absolutely. So much of this is wordplay. Yeah. And the people in the Middle East, they have a lot of faults. But, you know, one thing is, is that they've earned their hard-eyed cynicism about the professions made by major powers uh, to justify their actions in the Middle East. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that comes up very, very strongly in our book uh, is that uh, the British uh, denied that they were interested in oil uh, in Iraq. Mm. And this was said over and over again. Well, in fact, in their private communications, uh, they were interested in oil. And one reason the Iraqis are so touchy on this subject is they remember what we have forgotten, that when the British began developing oil in Iraq in the 1920s, uh, they set up a company in which they had absolute majority control. The Iraqis said, give us 25% 
equity in the company so that we're on the board of directors and have a voice. And the British said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Uh, we'll give you a slice of the profits, 10% of the profits, and that'll, you don't have to worry about a thing. Well, what happened was that for various reasons, there was a glut of oil in the market. There were no profits. So that the hard-pressed, nominally sovereign Iraqi government came to the British and said, we're broke. Oh, no problem, said the Brits. Uh, we'll lend you some money from our Iraqi oil company. Hmm. So they then became indebted to it and controlled by it. Well, that's the history Iraqis know. Hmm. Now, is there something about the temperaments of our culture that, that drive us to this particular position? And, you know, after you've, you've looked at these fascinating characters in this book, after you've, you've, you've set this more, it almost reads like a novel, the way you've written it, which makes it much more interesting for Well, thank folks. you. And did, is there something about the temperament of our cultures that, that clashes in a particular way that, that brings us to the point that we are right now in history? Well, yeah, I would say it's not exclusively an American trait, uh, and it's not exclusively a European trait. Uh, I think with the China very much on our mind, it's very much a Chinese trait, too. And that is, is that we tend to justify particularly the territorial domination of neighboring countries as helping them, giving them uh, a, a more progressive, enlightened, modern outlook, uh, bringing them the, uh, the benefits of civilization. And I think that the people who make this argument, certainly was the case of many of the people we write about, were absolutely sincere. They believe that the, the American or the Western intervention in the Middle East was on the whole beneficial to the people of the Middle East if they only understood it correctly. And I think that that uh, is part of our problem there because I think few arguments are more exasperating, even maddening, to the people concerned than the implication that they're barbarians. Yes. If you un only understood how smart we were, you'd agree with us. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but but is, is this, a, is this a, just another way of saying it's a colonial perspective? Well, I'm not sure colonial is the right word, but I would say that it is certainly, uh, uh, let me put it this way, uh, that great powers tend to behave very much in the same way, particularly, and this is what I think is relevant to uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, particularly uh, in the questions of their perceived security around them. Uh, the United States, you know, after all, proclaimed the Monroe Doctrine uh, back in the 1820s without consulting anyone else in the hemisphere. Uh, and then later on, a few years uh, on, a Secretary of State said, we are practically sovereign in this hemisphere. Yeah. Uh, and we carried out this principle. Uh, you're in California. I don't have to remind you that the Mexicans were among those uh, that were, learned something about the lessons of our of our sense uh, of mastery in this hemisphere. Yeah. So colonialism, I don't think we're colonial in the sense that we don't send, create colonies. Uh, the, we don't have uh, generations of people that go out and work in the colonies. But that we want to have a sense of a demonstration of our mastery, uh, I think, is true. And well, well, okay. I'm just on that point. Uh, sure. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, back in the the late 70s, I think 79 or so, declared the Carter Doctrine for the Middle East, which essentially was, and if you want to put it in easily digestible terms, it was kind of a Monroe Doctrine for the United States in the Middle East. Didn't we <laughs> essentially declare the Middle East off limits to any other 
powers around the world? Well, it built on the preceding Eisenhower doctrine, which in the wake of the time when uh, uh, President Nasser was uh, the great bogey in the Middle East, uh, said that we would defend any Middle Eastern country that we felt was being undermined uh, by uh, by an external power, i.e. the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And uh, in pursuit of that, uh, people have forgotten it, uh, Eisenhower, in, in the first major uh, maritime landing after World War II was the Lebanon in Lebanon when they sent uh, a division of Marines to bolster a pro-Western government in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that's interesting about doctrines, um, that... Uh, there was a, a 19th century writer named Sumner, mm-hmm. uh, a great realist about uh, uh, life in general, and he had a passage that said something, I think, very profound about doctrines. If you want a war, nourish a doctrine. Doctrines are the most frightful tyrants to which men are ever subject because doctrines get inside a man's own reason and betray him against himself. A doctrine is a metaphysical assertion. It is never true because it's absolute, and the affairs of men are all conditional and relative. If you allow a political catchword to go on and grow, you will awaken someday to find it standing over you, the arbiter of your destiny against which you are powerless, as men are powerless against delusions. Now, that was written in 1894. I agree. I agree with what he said. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Carl E. Meyer. Uh, The book is Kingmakers, the Invention of the Modern Middle East. As far as doctrines go, uh, what similarities of doctrines does uh, Lord Cromer, who you begin your book with, Kingmakers, and uh, say Paul Wolfowitz have? What, What are their similarities and why are they included in this? Well, they're bookends in the book, uh-huh. uh, and uh, I think in both cases uh, that uh, Lord Cromer, with the nominally lowly position of being the British Consul General uh, in Cairo, was for more than 20 years uh, the actual pharaoh, the, the veiled master of Egypt, uh, that he did it through uh, uh, indirect rule of the uh, the, the nominally uh, uh, monarchical Egyptian society, but he pulled all the strings. And in that time, there's no question that he benefited the Egyptians in many ways. He helped build the first Aswan ban, uh, Dam. Uh, he brought about the uh, programs of irrigation. He set up a, a better judicial system, etc., etc. But there were two catches. Uh, catch number one is that he neglected education because that made people sometimes a little too uppity and demanding things. And second, that he really, he really wanted the Egyptians to, 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 to humble themselves before the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And that created such such resentment, particularly when he favored minority groups within Egypt, that ultimately, in the 1950s, when the Egyptians finally got rid of all the remnants of of what they perceived as uh, Egyptian of British rule, there was what was called Black Black Friday, in which they torched whole districts of of Cairo and burned down the, all the buildings that were symbolized uh, British indirect rule. Mm. Well. Wolfowitz, too, I think, is very strong on his 
intentions to benefit. And he did a good job as an assistant secretary of state for, for Asia. Uh, he was later a, a president of the World Bank. But I think that implicit in Wolfowitz's attitude uh, was very much like Lord Cromer, uh, that, uh, that the United States uh, would backstage really be the ones determining uh, the policies of these countries. Um, was uh, just as a point of reference, and I, I'm I'm I can't quite remember. Was Paul Bremer referred to as the viceroy of Iraq at one no, time? No, 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 no. That was no. Just, was that just somebody? No, no. He was virtually the viceroy or the proconsul. Proconsul. That was. Uh, but uh, uh, his title, as I recall, was. Uh, uh, was uh, 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 chief representative or something. It was not. It was a, a much more I thought ambiguous he actually, title okay, than that. Okay, I thought he actually had the fact, title. For one year, yeah. he was the boss. Yeah, he yeah. was the boss. Um, how is it that, given the history, I want to go back in time. Sure. Okay, we, we, because we're talking about the invention of the modern Middle East. But sure. How how was it exactly back in the the, the early part of the twentieth uh, century? when the British were dividing up these different countries, particularly right. Iraq and that area, how was it that these boundaries came to be? What was the process by which... Oh, but that's it? a very interesting story, that uh, what happened was that uh, the British uh, were... The British Army in World War... Uh, the British Anglo-Indian Army, I should stress, in World War One occupied what was then called Mesopotamia. Uh, and Mesopotamia consisted basically of two... Ottoman provinces, uh, Baghdad and Basra. But Mosul, which was then part of Syria, was known to have oil. And when it came to the peace conference, the British negotiated a deal where they added Mosul to Basra and Baghdad to create uh, Iraq. Part of the reasoning was that the oil in Mosul would help pay the occupation costs at that time. Why does that sound familiar? Yeah, and uh, three days after the armistice was formally uh, in World War, ending World War One in November 11th, three days later, British forces occupied Mosul, uh, even though the war was supposedly over, uh, in order to secure their property claims, uh, so that the structure of Iraq was determined. Uh, rather arbitrarily, and it cut through a lot of ethnic and other lines uh, and laid the groundwork for a lot of the troubles we have today. Mm-hmm. So this was an artificial construct, essentially, as you as you correctly identified, cutting across, I assume, Shiite, Muslim... And Kurdish. Uh, Kurdish uh, yeah. lines right through the middle of uh, this region and without too much regard for these long-standing sort of ethnic issues that have been uh, flowing around the Middle East for many, many Right. There's a $5 word called irredentism, and irredentism is the uh, when countries try to redeem or seek territory they thought that they'd lost. And the irredentist quarrels with Iraqi neighbors uh, has been true almost from the time that Iraq was born. Well, can't we just kind of step back and look at our Google map and say, if you go from Turkey into much of what was the Soviet Union into Russia and around Pakistan and Afghanistan and the area around the Caspian and the Black Sea, well, we see that it, it, that seems to be the rule instead of the exception, that you see these artificial lines that were drawn many years ago by imperial powers or whoever, and right. now we're dealing today in the 21st century with the consequences of them. 
Oh, well, and I think nowhere more dramatically than in the northwest part of Pakistan, uh, where the so-called Durand Line cut through the Pathan peoples there and is the source of the very problems that the, the, we're dealing with today uh, with al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Now, Mike, speaking of arbitrary lines, I know you had a question about Joe Biden. Yes. Yeah, w- yeah, I would. Well, we, we as we all know, uh, Barack Obama has chosen as his vice presidential candidate sure. uh, campaign companion of uh, Joe Biden and uh was it a couple of years ago during the heat of the uh Iraqi war and our are trying to decide what we wanted to do Biden came up with this Biden plan which is essentially to divide Iraq once again divide Iraq up into three provinces Shiite Muslim and Kurdish what do well, you think Well you know uh, uh, first of all I I think Biden is an intelligent guy and I I I'm not saying this by way of uh, of, of belittling him but the problem there uh is that these are not homogeneously, ethnically homogeneous groups, so that if you sever them, there will be significant minorities of the other populations within each of the three things. Mm-hmm. That you'll have a lot of Shia in, in the Buddha, in, 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 the, in, the, in the Baghdad area, uh, and a lot of uh, Sunnis in, in the Shia area, so that there would have to be uh, a, a kind of a drastic exchange of populations. Uh, to create ethnically homogenous groups so that it does make more sense, I think, to adopt the confederal idea of having a basic unity of the in which people have a common citizenship with extensive home rule uh, or autonomy rather than breaking them up into three nations look we're seeing this very problem in georgia right now yeah. uh and every time we recognize yet another mini state uh we create a precedent for recognizing other mini states so i'm skeptical about the biden plan mm-hmm. well it i just was curious you you i mean you you were, uh, i think rather delicately say an exchange of ethnic ethnic people. I, I think you'd probably run into a situation that was much more violent than just asking people to move from one province oh, to another. Oh, it, it is. Well, yeah. in the case of, of, of India and Pakistan, yeah. literally millions of people were uprooted in the division of that, uh, and that on a smaller scale, you would have the same thing going on in Iraq. Uh, it's already happening, and the whole areas of, of, the, of Baghdad that had been mixed uh, are becoming uh, either Sunni or Shia. So this is a, this is a, t- a is a is a problem that I'm afraid our occupation has exacerbated rather than helped resolve. Yeah, we're speaking with Carl Meyer. The book is Kingmakers: The Invention of the Modern Middle East. Uh, can I make a, a, oh, a, a another point uh, that I think? One of the basic problems in the creation of the, of the modern Middle East is that during World War I, uh, when Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, had his famous 14 points, uh, uh, point 12 was that he promised the peoples of the Middle East, the nations of the Middle East, he called them, the, utterly, the right of utterly unmolested autonomous development, which the peoples in the Middle East took to mean self-determination. Uh, the British and the French, for their part, promised democratic institutions to all of their places. And having promised them, then after the, the war was over, they really backtracked on the whole thing and said, well, I'm talking about the British and the French. The Americans were on the sidelines then. The British and the French said, well, we really, you know, you're not quite ready for, for self-rule, et cetera, et cetera. And this sense of 
of a, a betrayal uh, laid the basis for so many of the problems that we have there. Well, isn't it, it's our propensity, uh, say the British, the French, and ourselves, our propensity, our desire, more like, to install people in, in these countries as president, prime minister, or whatever, king, that are in fact counter to the wishes of most of the people in these countries. I mean, we go, it wasn't Mossadegh really kind of dividing line in the development of the Middle East. Wasn't that a, isn't that a, a huge event in terms of... You mean the 53 coup that the yeah, yeah. British and the Americans uh, engineered Engineer, right. to get rid of uh, the elected prime minister who had nationalized uh, the Iranian oil? oil. Yeah. yeah, no, that's absolutely so. Um, and, but even before that, in 1949... Uh, the CIA, in what was their first attempt at a successful regime change uh, in Syria, uh, helped to pose an elected government and install uh, a, a military rulers. And we describe in our book how that came about. Uh, and uh, one of the authors, the architects of it, later wrote a wonderful book called The Game of Nations. His name was Miles Copeland. And in The Game of Nations was subtitled The Amorality of Great Power Politics. After being involved in the Middle East for a long time, uh, uh, he, decided, he became uh, disenchanted with his own work. Uh, and he said, here is his, the, the Copeland's rules. If you must change either the character or the course of another government, you must do it by the use of forces already existing inside the country. If no such active or dormant force exists, you must try another approach or simply adjust to an imperfect world. Um, and he gives a series of rules uh, which, alas, were ignored uh, when I think we mis- unwisely and rashly and unilaterally invaded Iraq in 2003. Do you, do you see any hope for us in uh, taking those rules to heart? In the near future? Well, I think the, what I take hope in is, is that the Iraqis uh, themselves, uh, are, for their own internal political reasons, are saying uh, that they want to end the occupation. Uh, now, how this shall be done and what safeguards could be installed will be, I think, the difficult problem facing any president, whether it's um, McCain or Iraq. Uh, whether it's uh, Obama, so uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have any glib answers to that question, <laughs> and uh, I think that we, the the worst part of sinking into a quagmire uh, is finding the right ropes to get out. Yeah, yeah. I I, I have a I don't want to ask too broad a question, <laughs> but I'm I'm tempted to ask, uh, which is if the Middle East chief export was broccoli. In the, in the words of, I think it was George the first, uh, George Bush the first, uh, we wouldn't, would these, would these kinds of ethnic clashes, this kind of unrest, this sort of turmoil, would it be happening? Uh, independent of any outside influence, are the peoples of this region of the world just destined to be in a state of turmoil? Because of the national reasons. Because natural of the national resources. Oil. Because I mean, I know this is too broad a question. I, I'm, I'm asking too, uh, too well, much. Well, uh, let me put a, a, a quick yeah. answer. Yeah. That the, the potential for conflict in this area is always there. Mm-hmm. And the, the great problem is, is that it's the outsiders that can ignite the conflict by supporting one group or another group in the countries. 
and I don't see an easy end and early end to this, particularly given our energy uh, problems. Yeah. And that the sooner we have energy independence and, uh, and less reliance on imported oil, uh, the more we will be have no reason to get in, involved uh, inextricably in the internal domestic affairs uh, of, a, of a people and a country and a region uh, where we really are at a loss to know who our Syria real allies are or what the right course would be. Well, uh, well, one way is to be uh, one way to get out from under all of this is to understand the history and to not continue to make the same mistakes. Um, here, here, uh, Carl, Carl Meyer. Uh, this is the book is Kingmakers: The Invention of the Modern Middle East. Uh, I want to thank you for being here on Weekly Signals. Well, thank you. It was, uh, I'm, I'm glad, and uh, uh, it was a good, lively discussion. And thank you for, for making it possible. Oh, thank, thank you. you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.